Michael, look, thanks a lot for doing this. I've been a big fan of your work. I remember we got connected, like probably, when was it? It was around 2020 that we got connected? That seems about right. I think it was during the, the heart of COVID, yeah. Yeah, during the heart of COVID that we got connected. And uh, one of the things that really impressed me was that you had a very different analytical point of view about crypto that really intrigued me from that point onwards. And that's why I started following you. And I was in 2020 in New York City. I, I'm from Sydney, but I was in New York City to do my MBA at NYU at that time. And I was studying blockchain. And I, you know, I started writing. That was the first time I started writing publicly about crypto. And uh, so I was following like-minded people. And what I really liked about you since then uh, is that you have continuously been different in your analytical mindset while being thought-provoking and insightful than a lot of the mainstream crypto media analysts out there. So thank you very much for doing this with me because I think it's very important that we get a take about what's really happening in the world of crypto in the United States that is making the rest of the world get worried about the future of it uh, with things like A16Z opening up offices in UK, uh, doing international expansion. So really keen to hear your views. So again, welcome and thanks for doing this. Yeah, thanks for having me, Shiv. Uh, excited to, to be on here with you and chat about everything that's happening uh, in the crypto space today. So awesome, man. So first thing I want to ask if you can just do a quick intro about yourself, because I know that I wouldn't do a proper justice of what you do with DeFi report and how you got into crypto at the first place. Because if I recall correctly, you were working for the MIT endowment fund, which runs in the billions of dollars. And that's how you got exposed to crypto. And then you came to, you know, doing full-time crypto. So walk us through that journey. Yeah, absolutely. Um, yeah. So I think it's fair to say the seeds were planted um, and really kind of the 2016, 2017 era I was working at, like you said, MIT uh, investment management company, which manages the endowment funds. And my background is in commercial real estate. So I was working on the real estate portfolio, no, no direct um, ties to crypto at the time, but just being at MIT, there were a lot of interesting things. You know, you get exposed to uh, some interesting research and um, got exposed to, we had a, a Bitcoin guy in the office, small office, but you know, had a Bitcoin guy. So that sort of like got me exposed to it. Um, I'm just like a very like intellectually curious person. So it sort of caught my attention and started to do some research on, on Bitcoin. Like most people um, got into the space and once 2020 rolled around, there was just so much more uh, excitement that was happening. You know, we had NFTs, we had DeFi summer. There was just like an explosion of, of activity in the space. So uh, eventually, like, just decided, like, I'm spending so much time and, you know, part time studying, yeah. doing research, just trying to get to the truth of it. It's such a controversial space. I really enjoy yeah. studying the data um, and just trying to unearth, like, what's what's actually happening. So. Um, officially joined uh the industry in 21 um started writing uh a newsletter called the DeFi report which uh has been i've been writing that for about two years now and that has turned into like a little bit of a consulting business on the back end of it so we have yeah. about 30 you know roughly 3500 subscribers to that and i'm doing i'm working with hedge funds vcs asset managers and sort of an advisory role uh and also some like data providers startups uh in the space um, so yeah, I've been enjoying the enjoying the ride. We've been in a, a crypto winter here now for for a little while, but looking forward to um, you know just seeing the space just really kind of grow and just like we're looking forward to coming off the, off the back end of of sort of like everything we've seen in this crypto winter. So great to be here with you. Yeah, so I'll I'll, I'll make a quick comment over here. Like I said, so I've been following you. We've been connected since 2020, 
but uh, we've got like a circle of friends in Australia who are all high profile in various industries. And we've got like a group going on where we occasionally talk about crypto or the macroeconomic conditions, what's happening in the world. And then uh, I think a few months back, one of them, they shared your DeFi report with me. Uh, and they're like, dude, this guy writes so well. And I'm like, dude, I know this guy. This guy is a killer. Uh, and uh, that's when I realized that uh, finally your consistent writing is paving the way and is reaching even places where in America you like to call Australia down under as well. Yeah. So uh, it's I think 3,500 subscribers is just the start. I think uh, you know you're gonna your writing is so uh, insightful that you're gonna get a lot of subscribers. I believe so. Now, that. MIT, uh, look, apart from SBF being a grad of MIT and bringing bad name to MIT that way, but apart from that, MIT and crypto, they both go hand in hand. I remember the first Bitcoin course by university was done by MIT, and the MIT Bitcoin Club was instrumental, which was started by an MIT computer science undergrad and an MIT MBA student. Uh, in 2014 in popularizing Bitcoin as a potential future of money. So it must have been great experience being at MIT and then learning about Bitcoin from a lot of professors as well. Did that happen while you were there? Yeah. So got it. Like I said, got exposure to just like, okay, this is happening. And, and, and then it was like, okay, it, you know, if I would go and talk to friends and family, many of whom work in uh, finance, work in technology that were not, you know, working at MIT at the time, weren't seeing like some of these presentations. Um, you know, it, it was really hard to have these, you know, conversations around some of this. Um, but 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 th then you're at MIT and you have the digital currency initiative at MIT. You have this support of like Bitcoin developers. You have like these extremely bright, intellectually curious people, just sort of more with an open mind just studying it from first principle and saying, what do we have here? Like, yeah. what, how, how does this work? Um, and so that was what, you know, captured my attention was just like this openness, not pre, you know, you talk to other people, there's just like this immediate knee jerk reaction, prejudgment um, before really kind of gathering the facts. So I think that's what I enjoyed about it was just like these, this is like an interesting uh, space to explore. Let's see where it goes. Let's try to poke holes in it. That was my first approach was like, yeah. this, let's try to poke holes in this thing and find a way that this wouldn't work. That was the process with Bitcoin. I mean, you get all the way to like Bitcoin mining and like the, the base layer, like what's happening economically, the incentive structure. Um, you start to realize it looks like it kind of looks bulletproof. Uh, and so once that moment happens, um, and you understand the history of money and you understand um, just kind of how things, you know, have evolved and that we have this like now fiat process, you can start to see like there's a path to Bitcoin, like becoming adopted. Um, and once that happens, it's hard to it's hard to step away from it. And of course, we have Ethereum and like, you know, I think we've talked about this. We sort of separate Bitcoin from the rest of kind of the crypto space. And you have a lot of, a lot of other exciting um, use cases for this new technology outside of um you know digital gold store of value potential currency so yeah, yeah so i i totally appreciate your journey with it as well because i had somewhat of a similar journey myself before you know i studied blockchain at nyu as part of my mba in to, or at that time i was working in traditional finance i worked for two and a half years at a bank in australia national australia bank so the journey for me to transition and be open-minded towards crypto was also very similar. I initially was there 
with my bias, that confirmation bias coming from a TradFi background, that this is a virtual asset, this is a scam, this is, you know, like a digital token, this could not be the future of money. And then the more I poked holes and realized this proof of work consensus system is bulletproof, and uh, with the historical context of how money has evolved, I'm like, and this could really potentially be the future of money. So I totally appreciate your journey that you have. And then I guess once you're in the rabbit hole, you realize this is the potential, it's very hard to get out from it. Uh, <laughs> That's right. One thing I want to ask from you, and maybe this is like where, you know, we can start the discussion about what's really happening in the US and uh, give it a more international lens. Mm. Crypto is a very polarized, uh, crypto has a very polarized view among, you know, hundreds of nations and their jurisdictions. Like, for example, Australia somewhat is, you know, crypto pro. They're very pro in creating sandboxes and being open about crypto. They might, you know, they see an FTX situation and then they might reconsider but they're generally very pro-crypto compared to other nations, majority of the nations. India, on the other hand, where I've been since last year, where I'm teaching crypto in business schools that are open-minded enough to consider this as a future prospect, like MIT, Wharton, and NYU are open-minded enough to have been teaching this course for a number of years. There are some institutions which I'm affiliated in India that are open-minded where I'm teaching as well. So crypto has got a very polarized view in different jurisdictions. What are the jurisdictions know about crypto that other jurisdictions that want to ban crypto do not know about, according to you? That's a good question. Um, well, I think the the thing that, and we can kind of get into this, like this idea of like game theory, uh, something I think is, is fascinating um, with, with crypto at large. But I think if you sort of peel back the onion and just what's happening in the US, you know, most studies show that between 10 and 20% of US adults either own crypto or are using crypto in some way for payments or some other some other uh, use case. And so that's not a small number, right? That's, that's, um, we have almost 260 million adults. So that's somewhere between 25 and 50 million um, consumers that are using this. Um, and so when you start to think about that, it's it's popular. People want to use it. It's it's an asset class that's reached uh, $3 trillion in like the liquid crypto markets. You have private enterprises as well that are probably another couple trillion. Um, and then you have all of these jobs and tax revenues around around that. So when I think about it, I think of like, okay, that's interesting. Like to me, the incentive would be that this is something that um, people are people like want to explore. People want to invest in it. People want to um, potentially shape the future of like internet-based businesses with this new technology. Um, the incentive to me should be to find a way to create proper compliance disclosures around that, so that people can can use it investors can be protected um, and we can foster innovation and, and a lot of young people are involved in this industry and they see this as their opportunity to make their mark on the world um, yeah. they should be able to do that um, and there's just there's a messiness to to very disruptive technologies this is pretty it's kind of part for the course when you go through history on this as well like yeah. uh, almost every major disruptive Correct. innovation has been met with similar pushback like this totally. so it gets complicated um, in America right now, there it's it's somewhat messy. The SEC has been, you know, sort of coming down with a lot of different enforcement actions. That ends up coming back to this game theory thing. 
well, if the, if the America is going to sort of push entrepreneurs and push jobs and tax revenues offshore, there's probably going to be somebody on the other side of that that, that, that wants to take that in. So um, to me, like that's that's at the core of this. It's just it's popular. People want to use it. And that's going to generate jobs and tax revenues. So exactly. I think your concept about game theory was very intriguing, which you recently shared at the DeFi report. And uh, this is something that I, you know, within my circles have been vocal about it as well, that look, the Pandora's box about decentralized blockchain enabled cryptocurrencies is open. If one country tries to stop it, they're digging themselves a hole. So they are not doing the world a favor. They are doing their citizens a disservice. And that's what pretty much happened. So since last year that I've come to India, and it's a very popular saying that, uh, as you know, Polygon, uh, Polygon is one of the most popular blockchains over there. And the founders are Indians. And uh, I think one of the founder went out in public and said that there is a big brain drain that is happening from India since, you know, the regulations were very anti-crypto with a lot of individuals moving to Dubai. And it's public out there. And something similar, I feel, is already happening with the U.S. And your theory about game, you know, your game theory about what's going to happen with crypto jurisdictions is quite relevant. Uh, A16Z opened its office in London and the Prime Minister Rishi Sundar, you know, he suggested and welcomed it with open arm. Uh, and he's been very vocal in public as well that he thinks he's got a positive vision about cryptocurrencies and he wants to create a positive regulation around it. Mm-hmm. And uh, yeah, so I totally agree with your game theory. Question over here. Chairman Gary of SEC, SEC Chairman Gary, he taught a course in crypto. He, before, you know, the FTX debacle, you know, he used to attend a lot of public events where he used to speak positively about blockchain technology. Even, for example, he used to speak positively about Algorand, which is not a really popular blockchain. Uh, No offense to all the Algorand investors or fans over there, but it's not really that popular blockchain. And he used to speak positively about a lot of blockchain and cryptocurrencies. According to you, I've got my own theory, but I'm keen to get your take on it. According to you, what happened after FTX that SEC chairman started bulldozing over crypto businesses in U.S. with a valid example being that they carefully examined Coinbase during the IPO listing. And now they're suing Coinbase when effectively none of their business has changed since IPO till now. So what has changed? Why is... uh, SEC doing this. I, I wish I could, you know, be inside Gary Gensler's head. Um, but you know, yeah, there's been like a very like some seems like somewhat coordinated, you know, effort of enforcement actions that have kicked off really kind of like starting in like the big the turn of the new year. We've seen just like a huge ramp up in enforcement actions. Um FTX happened in November. So like it was, you know, maybe six weeks before we started to see all this. Um, it's hard to say, like. You know, I was at MIT when Gary Gensler was teaching those courses. They're all online. Anybody can go and just Google um, MIT blockchain course and you can find these lectures. And, you know, that was a graduate level class. And it seemed like a lot of the students in the class were entrepreneurs uh, that were starting businesses that, that you know, had many had suggested they had, they had invested in crypto. And it was almost like Gary Gensler was like advising the class and it, and he was sort of like taking this approach as like an entrepreneur and this is how this space is going to like evolve. Um, and we've seen like almost the opposite stance um, since he's he's gotten into office. Um, hard to say what's going on, like if it's politics, if, um, you know, the SEC doesn't have proper staffing so that they can't actually 
like work on adapting some of these rules so that they sort of fit crypto assets, which are like fundamentally different. And we can we can get into some of that. Um, but yeah, I mean, it's it's hard to say like what what's truly going on. FTX is embarrassing for the FTX for for SEC because Gary Genzer had met with Sam Bankman-Fried. Um, you know, a lot of people in Congress had met with Sam Bankman-Fried on both those sides of the aisle. Um, so it's sort of like an egg on their face. You know, their their job is to protect investors. Um, but yeah, like I, it's 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 tough to say. And then maybe there's an over overcompensation because of this because they're embarrassed. But the result is you're sort of like punishing the firms like Coinbase that have tried to be, you know, like are voluntarily trying to comply. Um, and you're sort of like punishing them. And then it ends up rewarding like the offshore entities that are sort of more opaque and put investors at more harm. So um, it's it's a messy situation. Uh, I wish I could like. You know, I wish I was a fly on the wall in some of these office, you know, meetings that the SEC is having, but we, we don't know. Unfortunately, there's just been very little um, transparency or willingness to to work with the industry. So, yeah, look, I'm also speculating over here, but I think you I think you're according to me. I also feel that they are kind of overcompensating because mm -hmm. the way they have gone against these crypto businesses, especially Coinbase, seems to me that they are overcompensating because they got embarrassed with the whole FTX situation that happened under their noses. So I, I feel like they are kind of overcompensating and which is sad because I'm not going to comment about most of the crypto exchanges, but you got to give credit to Coinbase where credit is due. Getting listed on NASDAQ is not an easy feat. There are Australian companies like Atlassian, I know that are listed on NASDAQ. There are a few Indian companies as well that are listed on NASDAQ. Listing on NASDAQ is not an easy feat. There are a lot of regulations, compliance, and a lot of paperwork that one needs to do in order to get listed on the NASDAQ. So if Coinbase running a crypto business has done it, SEC would have carefully examined it with no business model of Coinbase changing. And now they're suing them saying that, you know, you're uh, selling unregistered securities. It seems uh, very agenda driven to me, uh, yeah. like like a total coordinated attack to me. That brings me to the famous Howey test of the 1940s. I remember studying this at NYU and that uh, Howey test kind of really helped me in order to shape my crypto investment career. Uh, because one of the things that I used to do before investing in a crypto startup that eventually would have listed a token was that is there a potential for this to be considered a security? And if it is using the Howey test, which pretty much uh, all lawyers mostly use, I wouldn't probably invest in it because then it would be an unregistered security. Yeah. Having said that, I do believe that the 1940s Howey test is outdated. What do you think about it? Um, I think I think that's probably accurate. Um, and I don't think, you know, when these laws were created, um, I don't think that they were contemplating, you know, these like blockchain native assets that are issued that um, have many features that are just sort of separate from how you would traditionally bucket a traditional uh, security or commodity. Um, you know, when you sort of like just sort of look at from first principles, like crypto assets, they they're different in many ways. Um, they don't convey, you know, legal ownership through that token, right? So there's no like liquidation preferences. They don't represent debt or equity or um, rights to interest or dividend payments. So like, that's like kind of the first, like really fundamental difference. And then, you know, these these assets can be used not only like to, are people potentially investing in them, but they're used um, to consume services, 
in many ways. Like so for Ether, which is one that's um, you know come up and uh, you know the SEC has refused to give an answer on this, but um, you use Ether, which is the native asset of the Ethereum blockchain to consume services, right? So that's that's like a commodity-like feature similar to exactly. like oil. It's a utility. Right? Yeah, so it has this utility towards it. And, you know, if you come back to the Howey test, um, you know, it's a, there's four prongs to the Howey test. It has to be uh, an investment of money in a common enterprise with the expectation of profits based on the efforts of others. Um, if it's an, if, if something has a commodity like feature like that, where you use the asset to consume services, all of a sudden it's not an investment. So if any of those prongs are not met, it disqualifies the asset. Right. And then a lot of these are decentralized. So then you get into like the common enterprise question, um, when it's secondary trading, like, is there an investment contract between the issuer and the person who's buying that token? Cause it's really on the secondary markets. So there's many, you know, these things have different interpretations, but to me, the most fundamental thing is they are different there. This is new technology. It's enabling new things. Um, and so there should be a new framework created to me, this will happen outside of the sec. This is Congress's, uh, job to essentially create a new framework. Um, important to remember, like the SEC laws, these are social constructs that were created. Um, they've worked very well. Like the, I think the U.S. capital markets are the the, mo- the largest, most liquid markets in the world. So I would say the SEC's track record is strong in this in this area. But this is a new this is a new thing. We don't know if they have proper staffing to handle this. It really needs to come from Congress, um, and a new framework needs to be created to to facilitate the role of the SEC, which again is capital formation right maintain orderly efficient markets and protect Mm -hmm. investors right they're not supposed to have a opinion on the assets or anything it's just we know there's there's a lot of people that are interested in this technology it's popular their job is capital formation orderly markets protect investors like we should be able to create a new framework and um, facilitate innovation protect investors Um, so that's kind of that's kind of my my take on it yeah, look, I, I agree with you. Look, I, I know a bit about the history of SEC, and I've written it in my book, uh, Protocols of Money, as well. And they, they've got a very good track record since the formation of them in the early 20th century. I mean, before that, you know, we know the story about what happened to Andrew Carnegie with one of his businesses, you know, one of the businesses that he was acquiring. The founders of that business were continuously issuing new shares and diluting uh, the shareholding. Uh, so SEC has got a good track record, but yeah, look, I totally agree with you. This the this blockchain technology enabled digital tokens require a new framework by people who have studied the technology and are also open-minded enough to poke holes, but are open-minded enough to give it a chance as well. And I guess that's what the UK regulators are doing under the leadership of uh, Prime Minister Rishi. And uh, there has always been a tussle between these two financial centers, hasn't it been? New York City or London, which is the global financial center. Every other financial uh, centers, whether it's Sydney, Mumbai, uh, Dubai, they all are you know, secondary. When it comes to tier one global financial centers, it's always London and New York. And coming back to your game theory about what's happening in the crypto world, America's self-goal, hopefully not, but their attempt with this self-goal, according to me, is going to make a win-win situation for London come up again as number one financial center. 
so wait and watch, I guess. Uh, I recently saw that there was a petition filed by the House of Representatives over SEC stabilization law. Have you read about that? I saw something. Is this where um, they they were they were also looking to like have Gary Genza removed as chairman? Is yeah. That, yeah, I saw something, but I didn't I didn't spend a ton of time on it. But um, yeah, I haven't I haven't had a chance to like really look into that. But that's an interesting development because I think you mentioned a little bit earlier. 20, sure, statistics suggest that 20% of Americans own or transact uh, with crypto. However, there are a lot of politicians, especially the presidential nominees at the moment are fighting for it, like Vivek and Robert F. Kennedy Jr. They all are very pro-crypto. So it's interesting that there is a polarized view about crypto and what it means for the American economy, even at a political level as well. What is your take on it? Yeah, I think that's super interesting. Um, and just to come back, I'll, I'll, I'm going to come around to this question, but I want to just address something also just related to the SEC that I think is sort of like sort of high level, sort of hovering over this like question of um, security versus commodity, which is like the, the sort of the thing that we, we yeah. seem to be zoning in on. Um, and like like you said, we're competing with other um, jurisdictions potentially around this. London doesn't, you know, the UK doesn't have this separation between the SEC and the CFTC. There's just one governing body. Um, and so this question of like security commodity, like isn't even a question for them. They're just like looking at it like, okay, how do we, is this thing new? How do we, how do we regulate it? And like the thing that, that concerns me a little bit um, with the SEC's approach to this, and I think it's a much bigger story is like, there has been, and there's a plenty of um, data on this. I've written about it a little bit. It's part of my over, overriding thesis for crypto is that there's a lack of trust in institutions uh, in America and particularly in America. And there's lots yeah. of data on just trust in media, trust in government, trust in a lot of these institutions that, that were created after World War II. So like in the 40s, like the World Bank, the IMF, all of these institutions that in many ways, the world is just evolving, right? We have innovation, we have younger generations, we have demographic changes occurring. Yeah. Um, yeah. All of these things are rippling through our society, but we're trying to like, just sort of like square the, these circles and continue to apply these old institutions. And it's it's causing a lack of trust. So I think like the SEC trying to just take crypto and bucket into a rule from 1940, like the output of this is just lack of trust. And it's just sort of fueling this fire. So I think um, that is what, you know, concerns me the most about just this approach. And this is how young people sort of view whether the SEC thinks they're doing the right thing or not. This is how this is sort of being viewed. Um, and so that's that's like the big, to me, that's like concerning. And as crypto gets more and more adopted, to me, that is like almost a, a bit of a siren that like something's wrong <laughs> um, in, in society in some ways. Um, so to come back to your question, on like just politics in the US, I think that it, it does get interesting because like politicians, you just follow the incentives. Um, like like there, if, if there's millions and millions of people that wanna use crypto in the US, there's obviously going to be politicians that step up and say, okay, I'm gonna stand and support this. Yeah. I want those voters. Um, so you're seeing that, you know, with some of these early presidential candidates, um, DeSantis uh, on the Republican side, RFK on Democrat Vivek, as well um you know and we've seen that the current administration seems somewhat hostile like the, the yeah. white house the executive branch and the regulatory apparatus around it somewhat hostile but when you look at congress um more nuanced again we have like this you know three branches of government yeah. 
Uh, Coinbase has some pretty good data on this, on just like publicly available statements that politicians have made, legislative records. So they're tracking a lot of this. And, um, you know, it looks more nuanced than you might think. It's not fully complete information because we don't have every single uh, policymaker. But it looks like there's more Democrats and more Republicans that support innovation. Um, and so and now we're going to get a chance to see how the courts, you know, yeah. are looking at this when we look at Coinbase and Ripple case out there as well. So um, I have faith that like the the system in the U.S., that the balance of powers is, you know, is going to ultimately like work out. And yeah. even though jobs may be leaving right now. Um, this will eventually get worked out. Um, the incentives will eventually shift once we see like other jurisdictions, you know, um, you know, essentially creating jobs and, and tax revenues from the industry. I could see things actually sort of like ricocheting back to America once we get this a framework in place um, and it being a great place for entrepreneurs to, to start businesses again. So um, we'll see. That could take a few years for all of that to play out. But that's sort of my... Um, that's kind of the framework that that I'm that I'm using right now. Yeah, look, I am also like it, it's in the best interest of the world and for the industry that uh, America is pro crypto yep. uh, and for innovation in general. I mean, for the last uh, at least for the last 50, 60 years, America has been the cradle for innovation with Silicon Valley pumping in most of the capital to fund this innovation and um, with the web 3.0 even though i don't like to use that word but fair enough for the web 3.0 for the decentralized internet to function on the back end of blockchain technology it would require a capital and uh, it would be ideal if most of the jurisdictions are pro it but having said that america always plays a major role in the innovation ecosystem of the world and if they are not part of it i think uh, the promise that we have for blockchain technology we might get to it much later without us than with us just quickly while we're touching about the topic about politics american politics and crypto currently you spoke recently you wrote recently about the bipartisan bill that was uh, you know proposed by senator gillibrand and loomis correct yep that was the first one um that one's bipartisan there's been a new one that was uh, actually two republicans which yeah. is more kind of the hinman Hinman uh, applying a lot of what Hinman, Hinman talked about. But yes, that's, that was the first one. Is it comprehensive enough? What do you think needs to be added in it? Um, it's it's a first draft. So I would say none of these are, are going to be comprehensive enough, like initially, and, and it should probably go through uh, multiple rounds. Um, the mm -hmm. thing that like I think it was addressing and I'd have to go back and like really study it again. But it, it was there were a lot of issues around, um, you know, taxation of crypto. There were issues around um, like KYC AML for like miners and validators. Like there was there were certain like um, rules that were like being proposed that showed like a complete misunderstanding of like how some of these assets and, and networks work. So they were addressing some of that. And then the big thing is, you know, a path towards crypto assets that become sufficiently decentralized as being digital commodities uh, versus digital securities. And then, you know, having the CFTC oversee those assets um, and places like Coinbase, you know, trading those assets, right? If they're not uh, securities and they don't have to register on securities, you know, broker dealer licenses and go through all of all of that, you know, there's just different set of disclosures and compliance requirements there. 
Um, so to me, that creating that framework is probably the most important thing. And then defining, right? There's there's all these new concepts that that crypto is introducing as like a new innovation. Yeah. And so we need like very clear definitions for what is a crypto asset, what is a crypto asset security, what is a crypto asset commodity. Um, I would say A16Z put out, um, you know, with their law firm Latham and Watkins, which is a big, you know, uh, reputable law firm here in the states. They put out a framework for not just like layer one uh, blockchains, like the consensus protocols, but also um, like applications, like DeFi protocols, things like that. Essentially, a framework for um, all the elements necessary for something to go from a, a security to a uh, more decentralized crypto commodity. And so, so that's really what needs to get worked out is like very clear definitions that then the industry can step back and say, okay, these are the rules. Yeah. Like now we just, you know, we follow these rules um, and, and we can protect investors, you know, have proper disclosures and innovation can can be fostered in this country. So I think I think it's really what it comes down to is really defining um, all of these new concepts. Yeah, I think that that's a very good answer. I, I'm in agreement with that. I like what you said, crypto commodity. That's a, that's a, that's a word that we don't hear often and that's what needs to be you know showcased in publications and news media often at the end yep. of the day there are more crypto commodities like you're not gonna consider gold silver uranium as security even though when people buy those commodities especially in the futures market they buy right. it mostly with the expectation of a profit because they are speculators. But you're not going to consider that a security. It's a utility that is eventually used. Uh, similarly, crypto uh, and these tokens represent utility. I like what you've mentioned, crypto commodity, because I haven't heard it in some time. And just to just to add on to that, like there is like a a, a potential framework that I've been thinking through. Like when you when yeah. you look at so Bill Hinman was at the SEC and he had like done this speech proposing a, a path towards like some of these assets like Ethereum that start, you know, pretty centralized and they look like securities, but then there's a pathway to them becoming decentralized and then they they become commodities. I think that this there, this can certainly be constructed. And when you look at like, I deal with a lot of on-chain data. Um, and so when you see the transparency of crypto networks and sort of the data that comes along with that, you can do disclosures like pretty yeah. easily. You do need a third party to attest to smart contracts that like retail investors are not going to be able to read. Um, but like if you go to a uh, get to a crypto asset that becomes decentralized, I work with a company called Token Terminal, which is on chain yeah. data. And the direction that platform is going is almost they're going to be like once a company becomes decentralized and they can sort of register they they list through token terminal now token terminal is attesting to all of the on-chain data all of their smart contracts and that's all transparent for retail to be able to analyze and look at you need a third party to to attest to that um but that to me is very interesting like you know when you look at like some of these crypto networks and a, an investor may come in fairly early stage it's almost like the equivalent to series a series b sometimes sooner um the transparency that an investor has via on-chain data is pretty interesting it's more to me it's more transparency than private investments um so i think that that's a fascinating subplot that that i don't even think is on the radar of congress just yet but these are the, the transparency the openness of crypto is a tool for regulators so i am in 100 percent agreement with you 
the transparency of uh, blockchain is misunderstood by by 99% of the people it's yeah. it's very misunderstood people yeah. yes there are certain privacy protocols you know like monero uh, zcash uh, tornado cash uh, these are all privacy protocols that protect your privacy on chain as well however the rest of the blockchains especially bitcoin it's very transparent the transactions mm -hmm. of bitcoin yep. ethereum very transparent the transactions and you're quite right i've used token terminal as well token terminal is a fantastic product out there that makes this on-chain data uh, easily readable for yep. anybody for that matter and yep. just to make a quick point what you raised by giving an example when the whole ftx debacle was happening i think uh, majority significant majority of the crypto industry were shocked because SBF fooled a lot of people, a lot of sophisticated investors that comprised of marquee venture capitalist funds, uh, as well as pension funds. They all got fooled uh, by SBF's, uh, what was his, uh, what what did he used to call? He, he came from a school of effective altruism. Uh, yeah, it? effective altruism, correct. Yeah, yeah. So sure. I think his effective altruism charisma fooled a lot of people. But when this whole debacle was happening, it was the on-chain data and the decentralized community that started warning people yeah. that some shit is going down. Yeah. As opposed to when Silicon Valley Bank happened, it happened crazy fast as well. But there was no on-chain data or transparent data that one can, you know, look at it. It was basically hearsay and some trusted sources that started saying it. But yeah. when it comes to FTX and what was happening in their crypto wallets, it was for the world. Anybody can verify it. Yeah. So I think that's a very valid point that you've raised that th these blockchain protocols enable transparency and that it is a tool for regulators. It's a friend for regulators rather than an enemy and they should rather than embracing it, they're going to the opposite end, uh, which is bizarre to me. And that's why I feel that majority of the jurisdictions regulators either have that human bias of that something is new. So let's, you know, it must be bad. Uh, or they are just misinformed uh, with some established players' agenda working behind the scenes. Yeah, I would agree. Um, I, I I couldn't agree more. And that's that's one of the things that really draws me to to the industry. Frankly, is I've spent my most of my career in accounting and finance, you know, studying data. And I I love that we we now have like this really transparent. We have these these financial assets that are super transparent. We can analyze these business models. And we can start to like think about you know fundamental valuation, uh, which is an area that I that I focus a lot on because we have this like super rich, uh, transparent on-chain data. So um, I'm really looking forward to this becoming more in the consciousness of not just regulators but um, financial market participants as well. What is Token Terminal doing more into it? Can you provide like a little bit more info about? What token terminal is doing it yeah so for people that aren't familiar with token terminal um they are an on-chain data provider so essentially what they're doing is giving uh the general public invest primarily investors um vc funds hedge funds that, that are using their platform but they're essentially like presenting on-chain data in a way that like a traditional investor would think about like a financial statement right so like a lot of these assets have um, the, everything's being conducted on chain, but you can you can see the actual revenue um, that's being generated, the token incentives um, that are used to sort of like um, incentivize participation in the network, service providers, 
um, compensate validators, things like that. We can see, you know, that's like an expense. Um, we can see, you know, the amount of, because it's all open source, we can see the number of code commits and developer activity. Um, so you have like, just like this pretty robust data set to do fundamental analysis, to look at total value locked, to do like relative comparisons of other projects. Um, so I think that's sort of like the primary value proposition, but they actually just got integrated with Bloomberg Terminal, which is oh, wow. one of the largest, yeah. you know, data providers for like all of the largest markets around the world. Mm -hmm. And so now any equity analyst uh, can that's using Bloomberg has access to fundamental crypto valuation data. Um, yeah. So I think that's super interesting for like, you know, sort of like what I've been talking about, these fundamental valuation frameworks that are going to start to come to crypto. Um, and then they sort of see themselves potentially as this like public registry, right? Like, like if we get a formal process for a crypto project to go from security to becoming more decentralized, issuing their token, um, listing their token, now all of a sudden token terminal taps into all their smart contracts. We can see, we can see like financial statements um on a quarterly basis and you have somebody that's like attesting or auditing the smart contracts as a third party all of a sudden like that looks like it's like an edgar database or like yahoo finance yeah. for crypto um, yeah. so i think i think that's the ultimate direction this starts to go there's many other um quality data providers you know out there in the space now as well but I think that's a super interesting area uh, to keep an eye on in, in crypto. Yeah, uh, look, I remember using Token Terminal during the 2021 NFT and metaverse craze, because I was uh, on a daily basis, not a daily basis, but you know, every now and then uh, on a weekly basis, used to follow how much is Axie Infinity generating in terms of fees sure. in order to understand you know, how popular it is and yep. when would the bubble pop so that you know we can short it or what, do those transactions and uh, yeah token terminal was very instrumental uh, to do those sort of fundamental analysis because yeah. otherwise in crypto it's basically behavioral analysis right, right. And that's where again there is this 99% uh, like I'm just spitting out the statistics I do not know whether it's 99% but like majority of the people think they just do technical analysis in crypto and think that this is the way that they're going to you know make money but no there is a fundamental analysis layer as well within crypto just like how there is in traditional investment contracts uh, that you can evaluate to see whether now is a good time to buy or sell uh, so yeah token terminal has played a very instrumental role for a lot of professional investors in this space quickly man coming back a little bit on DeFi. DeFi, uh yeah we had an incredible DeFi summer 2020 2021 we saw some crazy projects you remember uh what was it called wonderland the one that used to mm -hmm. give like around crazy eighty thousand percent annualized percent yeah. yield that got crashed and anybody who knows a little bit of a finance knew that that's not sustainable and it's going to crash we haven't witnessed a DeFi summer again yes we haven't witnessed a, a kind of like an nft summer as well next year bitcoin halving is happening and people you know always correlate that after Bitcoin halving, Bitcoin is going to go up and then it's going to have a flow on effect with old coins. Is there spark in DeFi that you are seeing or the novelty of DeFi that was introduced in 2020 has kind of waned out? Or are there, you know, some uh, DeFi innovations that you are eager uh, for it to skyrocket when the whole hype cycle starts again? 
Great question. Um, yeah, DeFi has been, if you look at like charts of various like DeFi blue chips, if you look at like Uniswap, Ovid, Compound, yeah. Synthetics, uh, MakerDAO, like if you chart these things against like Ethereum, um, they're all underperforming Ethereum really since that like that big adoption wave uh, in mm -hmm. 2020. Um, and so there is the, the space has gone through, I would say, somewhat of like a period of disillusionment. Um, and I would say like what I'm what I'm looking at primarily is stuff like Uniswap, where like what is the fundamental is there a fundamental breakthrough that is going to be adopted like outside of just like these illiquid crypto assets that are trading in these pools today? And if you look at like what's happening with Uniswap, like they're on many days now, they're seeing almost as much volume as Coinbase, some days surpassing Coinbase's volume, yeah. which is was sort of the promise of Uniswap when it's rolled out uh, a few years ago. So to me, like when you look at the price of Uniswap, it's it's sitting at a similar level to like a couple of years ago when they launched it, but they've already, but they're doing volume yeah. at the same level as Coinbase. So to me, there is something here. There's a fundamental yeah. breakthrough with uh, like an automatic market maker. And to me, that is like, you're able to bootstrap liquidity of illiquid mm -hmm. assets. Uh, and okay. so this is something where we have, uh, we have trillions and trillions of, of dollars of uh, illiquid assets around the world the real estate is one of them um so i think there's going to be opportunities to use protocols i, I view uniswap as a protocol similar to i would yeah. view um email like the like smtp protocol for email and then other businesses built on top of that protocol and so i think this is a protocol similar that's going to get applied to like many different use cases in in traditional finance um we need to like get proper kyc and aml into DeFi, there needs to be some sort of like permission pool so that larger financial institutions can identify their counterparties, be in compliance, all of this. Um, but there's a clear breakthrough with this innovation. And when you look at the total volumes of trading activity on something like Uniswap, when you look at the total number of users, when you look at um, the like economic value creation that is occurring there, like you can't ignore that. Um, so that's that's sort of how I think about DeFi. You have this these new business models, also with lending and borrowing, with derivatives. Um, to me, this this will these will be sort of like building blocks for other interesting things that I think traditional finance will actually be like the the application layer that taps into these protocols underneath and then offer services to to their customers. I think that's ultimately where it goes. Um, so I just I just look at like the fundamental breakthrough. There's something here. Yes, it's in a period of disillusionment. The token um, is, it's hard to like see how value is gonna get accrued back to these tokens. Um, but it's kind of like early days of the internet. People were totally. just seeing like totally. eyeballs. It's like we yeah. have this thing called total value locked and people are using that as a metric to, to assess value. In the early days of the internet, it was just eyeballs, right? There wasn't real revenue there just yet, but we knew it was popular. We knew there was something there. Uh, that's kind of where DeFi is at right now. So it'll be interesting if, you know, we get into another bull market, are these blue chips going to uh, have another moment? Um, I tend to think that probably will happen. Um, there's also like this DeFi 2.0, like wave of projects, like interest rate swaps and, and more like, um, just like more building blocks that the space needs for like uh, fixed interest rates. Um, where we may get to a point where Ethereum becomes like sort of like the, the like, uh treasury rate of DeFi, you know and then all of a sudden the lend borrow markets 
are are sort of off that like you now you have a yield yield curve for forming yeah. um and DeFi starts to make more sense um but i would say right now it's uh you know it's it, it's there it's going through a period of, of disillusionment i would say besides like uniswap which is still just like um seem pretty pretty broad in use so look i would agree with your assessment about the DeFi market as well i think uh uniswap i'll put uh by the way none of this is investment advice michael and i are not giving any investment or legal advice in this uh conversation uh, just our humble opinions but yeah i'm with you uniswap i like one inch as well the you know DeFi uh aggregator Awe, all those lending protocols i'm a you know i'm, I'm a fan of what they've done but yeah, Uniswap uh, and OneInch to me are uh, those two protocols that I find really interesting and extremely undervalued considering consistently how they've been functioning. So yeah, I'm in, agree I'm in agreement with your assessment there. I need to ask you this question since it's a flavor. What, where do you see the intersection between AI and blockchain? Um, so I think I've seen a lot of, a lot of people are pointing to this as like, okay, like we're going to have like AIs could introduce all these bots and we're going to have all these like smart things, just doing things for us. And blockchains can be a way to like validate whether that's a person or a bot. So that was like one use case. I think of blockchains and like, we're still very early with blockchains, but I think of them as like these public goods that store the state of everything that's taking place on the internet. They store like what, they're like a massive accounting system for the internet, um, which is really like a massive database for the internet that's a public good. It's not controlled by any private entity. And what AI is doing is like, it's basically, it needs like large data sets to mm -hmm. extract like interesting information from. And so if, if blockchains become these like really robust, rich data sets, then you're going to have AI like working with in conjunction with blockchains to do like interesting, interesting things. Um, so I think that's really like where the where the two like intersections are like validating data, um, validating proof of like humanity, proof of um, identity. And then like blockchains as databases where AI is like leveraging them to to do some interesting things. Man, I want to do a deep dive with you, just just like a deep dive where we just talk talk about WorldCoin and ChatGPT because yeah. they both are founded by Sam Altman, and uh, he probably would have thought about something on how these two projects are going to intersect since yeah. he's so close to both of them. Uh, yeah. You know, and having that being a president of Y Combinator for ages, you know, being exposed to innovation and startups like and then he then starts open ai and worldcoin both uh, he would have some vision behind how these two technologies are going to intersect for partly public good uh, yep. you know worldcoin is for public good i i mean that's what at least it is portrayed as so right. uh, I, i'm re i'm really keen to do a deep dive on it as i know that you know and have got good thoughts about uh, worldcoin so it, it's going to be good look thanks michael this was great let's do this again this is great. Let's do it again. Uh, enjoy. Awesome, man. All right, bro. All right. I'll see you. Take care. Bye.